Bibles tonight, if you would please, to the epistle of 1 John chapter 5. And in these past two weeks, we have been considering the last uh, part of the last few verses, the closing remarks, some of these closing remarks in John's epistle. Verse number 13 is the summation of the purpose of the epistle. And John wrote this letter to struggling Christians that were trying to gain assurance of his salvation. And after he was through with the arguments, uh, all the arguments had been made about assurance. Now John turns his attention to these closing remarks. And in particular, verses 14 through 17 uh, concern prayer. And whenever Christians receive the assurance of their salvation, they can have the utmost confidence that they are the children of God. And because they have a relationship with God, then they can expect to be treated as his children because they are very dearly beloved of the Father. Now, today I spent some time uh, on the next to the last message. I was working on that today that we're going to, next to the last message that we have here in First John. I'll just give you a little bit of an update. Looks like that we will finish First John on February the 29th. I think that's the last Wednesday night of next month. We'll be finished with First John. So we've still got a few messages to go here uh, to try to finish this up. And I think that the last, especially the last few verses, are, are really, really interesting. At least they are to me as I've put the messages together for that. But I'd like to you to turn your attention now, if you would, to this uh, 14th to the 17th verses. We'll read those once again this evening. John says, and this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. And if we know that he hear us, whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we desired of him. If any man see his brother sin a sin which is not unto death, he shall ask, and he shall give him life for them that sin not unto death. There is a sin unto death. I do not say that he shall pray for it. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin not unto death. Now, let me give you just a brief review of the previous points of the message. And these are worth going over again and again because we're talking about one of the, a subject that is one of the most puzzling subjects to Christians, one of the hardest for us to understand, and that's borne out simply by the many, many questions that we get concerning prayer. And uh, consistently, this topic provokes questions. If I were to make a list, write down all the topics that people ask me about, probably right up next to the top of that list or at the very top would be questions about prayer. That's because Christians want to know how to have a better prayer life and what happens in prayer. Uh, they want to know how they can get prayers answered and always inevitably there will be a question, why aren't my prayers being answered? And so we've tackled this subject and considered it for the past couple of Wednesday nights. And we've talked about some of those issues and uh, hopefully covered much of that. But this evening I'd like to cover one additional thought. And then I'm going to save the last one for next week. And we're going to devote the entire message to that, and I don't want to get into it this evening because uh, it'll take quite a bit of time to consider it thoroughly. 
And what I'd like to talk to you about next time will be this, this uh, comment that John makes about a sin unto death. And I want to look into the different ideas that people have about what that, that means, the sin unto death that we find in verses 16 and 17. And so some of you might get real worried over the next week or so, being concerned about have you committed the sin unto death? Can you commit a sin in the, unto death? And what kind of sin is that? Is he talking about eternal death? Is he talking about physical death? What, what, what's John talking about there? Well, that's what we're going to consider next week. But just for the purpose of review, let's look over what we've already talked about in the last couple of weeks. Point number one in your outline was confidence in prayer. And the connection between verses 13 and 14 is the confidence that a Christian has in prayer because he has eternal life abiding in him. And we can see and understand that that is a worthy consideration for John to explore. And we can understand why he would draw these certain inferences because he's already spoken about assurance. And because there's nothing like having somebody to talk to when you're having a hard time, it's only natural for him to bring up this idea of talking to God. Now, when we were in verse number 13, I introduced the message by speaking of the difficulties that first century Christians had, uh, the persecution, then they had lack of immediate access to teachers and to materials. And so without all the available resources that we have today to help us, whenever they encountered heresies, it could be a long time before they could get those issues resolved. Whenever there was something that came along that would shake their faith, um, they, they didn't necessarily have an answer to that right away. So what, what do you do? Who do you talk to when that happens? What if there's nobody around you that really knows any more about the subject than you do? And they're having trouble as well. What do you do? And that's when it's so good to know that the real source of comfort, the real answers that we need come from our Heavenly Father. And we have a relationship with Him and we're able to go to Him and ask Him about these things. So we have direct access to God in prayer. And when you're sure that you are a child of God, you have that comfort that when you have a specific need, that you have full assurance that God will take care of that need. And the idea that's conveyed here is a perfectly logical consequence of having eternal life because if we have it in us, that means that God is disposed to hear us. We have believed. We are in that right relationship. And so we can fully expect that God will uphold the promise that he will hear us. Then next we talked about the condition of prayer. And there is one basic condition that that governs the acceptance of our prayers, and that is that we pray according to God's will. If we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. And for some people, that is really a huge sticking point because the, the next question is, how do I know God's will? How do I figure that out? And so they go off scratching their heads and they're very puzzled about prayer, always wondering and trying to figure out what is God's will? How do I know what to pray for and how, how, how to pray? And I would maintain that God's will is not really all that hard to figure out. God's will for a non-Christian is very simple. You don't have to figure out God's will because it's only one thing, trust Christ. That's what you have to do. You have to trust Christ. You have to believe this record that God has given of his son. And when you get that major piece of God's will accomplished... 
Only then is a lost person, a non-Christian, ready to take other steps to find out about God's will. But for those of us that are Christians now, our primary resource to find out what God's will is, is what's already been written in his word. If we keep his commandments, then we're living in the will of God. And the real problem, I guess, arises over certain decisions that we have to make, and we agonize over those decisions, and we're just puzzled. How do we know what to do? And on that front, I would say that any decision that you make that does not violate what you've learned in God's word is a right decision. Whichever way that you decide to go, you'll be in God's will as long as you're not doing anything that will violate what God has already told us in his word. But there's still a problem with that because there are many Christians that want to override what they know to be the right answer because they want to do what they want to do rather than what God wants them to do. And usually, I mean, I I think we could put this in the category of nearly 100% of the time. When you do something like this, you do something that's out of the will of God, it's because your focus is off. That causes the problem. We've forgotten why we are Christians. And we are Christians for God's purposes, not ours. Paul was writing on the subject of fornication in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And I mention that because I don't want to forget the context of the verse. But his words in the 20th verse of 1 Corinthians 6 are pertinent considering any sin that would cause us to lose our focus of purpose. He says, therefore, ye are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. In other words, you belong to God. And so everything you do is to be for God's glory. And that leads us into the next point. Number three was conformity in prayer. And conformity means when you are being molded into the image of Christ. And conformity takes place when you are convicted of sin and then you take steps to correct that sin. Sin is described in chapter 3, verse number 4, as the transgression of the law. The transgression of God's law. And so every transgression then would be non-conformity. And the opposite of that would be keeping God's law, which is conformity. So in chapter 3, verse 22, John says, And whatsoever we ask, we receive of him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. So we're conformed when we're constantly rooting out sin. And when we're doing that, we have the promise that our prayers will be answered. Sin is a barrier that hinders prayer. And John has already dealt with that as one of the proofs of our faith, that if we are living in sin, then we have no confidence that we're Christians. And if you carry that on through here to chapter 5, if we have no assurance of our salvation, then we have no confidence that prayers will be heard. Fourthly, we talked about corporate prayer. And we get that from verse number 16. That's prayer for our brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's where it's introduced. And this would be a logical inference from John's doctrine as he talked about the need for brotherly love. And if you love someone, what will you do? Well, you want to be in God's will and you want God's blessings to be on you. And so you'll pray for your brothers and sisters in Christ if you love them so that they'll also be in God's will and God will bless their lives. And so when they sin, 
You pray that God will deliver them from that sin. And if you can be used as God's instrument to to help them, then pray for that too. But you have to make sure that you help them according to point number three, and that is that you are conformed to the image of Christ. You're doing the best to eliminate sin in your life, and then you're able to pray, and then you could take whatever steps that God would have you to take to help them. Now, that idea of corporate prayer prayer is something that we need to expand on at the next point, and it really leads us into this next consideration, and this is the one we're going to deal with tonight, and that is intercession in prayer. Intercession in prayer. Now, John's approach to prayer is quite remarkable for its consistency. And you can really tell that John learned something from Christ, and the life of Christ made an indelible impression upon him, and it really burned down deep into his soul. Because John couldn't have spent those three years following Christ in his ministry without seeing the total compassion that Christ had for others. His purpose and coming to this earth was because of others. He came to this life because, or to this earth because he was willing to give up everything for his people. The incarnation that's spoken of in the first chapter of First John, and then the propitiation of Christ in the second chapter, in the beginning of the second chapter, and then the return of Christ in the end of that second chapter, all of that is about others. Christ did all of that because of us. He gave up heaven in order to come here, and he lived, uh, was born into a poor family. He suffered humiliation in his life and in his death, and that was done for others. He ascended back into heaven with the promise of the full intention that he would return here and he would receive his own. He would resurrect their bodies. He would establish a kingdom on earth. And for sure, God is glorified and Christ is glorified as he does that. But the reason that he does it is for others. It's his love for us. So it's not surprising that having learned this, that John gives us an example of prayer and he does so in a manner that's consistent with Christ's teachings. But unfortunately, it's inconsistent with the way that most Christians pray. And that's because rather than considering others, it's usually our practice to consider ourselves first. Now, if you honestly evaluate your prayer life, I mean, do you find yourself slipping into that habit where you pray only for yourself and not for others? I find that happens to me sometimes. And so I just stop in the middle of my prayer and I say, that's not right. And I have to remind myself that I want to pray according to the model that Christ gave. At first, I want to begin by glorifying God for what he's done for me. And then I want to move immediately into a prayer about others. But if I'm not careful, I end up praying for me and mine and never get to the point that I consider other people's needs. Well, the example of intercessory prayer that John gives here, I mean, this, this is the type of prayer that, that he gives the example of. I mean, he has just a short space to end this letter and... He gives us a practical inference from the assurance of eternal life. That practical inference is prayer, knowing that God will answer our prayers, but it's remarkable the type of prayer that he chose. And he chose intercessory prayer. He has confidence in praying for others. And if you want God to hear your prayers, don't be selfish. And that feeds right back into the problem of praying outside of the will of God. 
His will for you is to be considerate of others. You see, you're part of a new family. You've entered into a loving relationship not only with God, but also everybody else that's a part of his family. And some of those people in his family are very hard to like, and they're hard to get along with. And those are the ones that really need the prayer most. I mean, they're the ones that need the love. John Stott wrote in his commentary on 1 John, The assurance of eternal life, which the Christian should enjoy, ought not to lead him into a preoccupation with himself to the neglect of others. On the contrary, he should recognize his duty in love to care for his brother or sister in need. One of the objections that's leveled at assurance And this is what some people say about this. You mean you really do believe that you have assurance of your salvation? You really do know that you're a child of God? You really do believe that God hears you? And one of the objections that they raise raise to assurance is that it's the height of arrogance for you to say that you enjoy eternal life in the present while there are others that are still in sin and they are objects of God's wrath. And the the objection is that if you think that way, then you'll come to the place that you think that you're better than others and that you're reveling in all of God's blessings while the have-nots aren't even a consideration any longer. And I have to say that there are some Christians that help to foster that objection because they get swelled up with pride as if they are better than others and they use their Christianity as a club a means to push other people down because they think that they're more holy than them. Paul addressed that kind of arrogance in the Corinthian church. They were boasting concerning their conversion from the standpoint that one would say, oh, I'm, I'm a better Christian because I was, I was converted under the preaching of Apollos. And then another one say, no, 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 I, I'm a better Christian because I was converted under the preaching of Paul or under the preaching of Peter. And so they were bragging even about their conversion and about the preachers and reveling in their, in their uh, ministers that they were converted under. And if you were somebody that got saved by a testimony of a Sunday school teacher or a poor lowly slave, then your salvation was just not as good as theirs. And Paul answers that. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, this is the very argument that's going on here. For who maketh thee to differ from another? And what hast thou that thou didst not receive? Now if thou didst receive it, why dost thou glory as if thou had not received it? So Paul is saying there, what did you get that wasn't given to you? And what did you do that makes you better than somebody else? How can you glory in yourself? Everything that you have came from God. And that could be applied in a lot of different ways. And I'm not going to go into them now. But for the purpose of our discussion, there is no one who has right to glory in his assurance. Not as if he's done something great. Because even our perseverance in the faith comes because of God. That's maintained by God. Paul said, it's God who works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. And then further, Jesus said, you can't boast about anything. He says, when you've done all that you've been told to do, and you look back on that, and you think, wow, look what I've accomplished for God. Look what a great Christian I am. I've done something extraordinary. I've gone beyond the call of duty. You know what Jesus says? When you shall have done all those things which are commanded, you say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done that which is our duty to do. 
Now, bringing that back then to the discussion on prayer, that humble attitude that's commanded by Christ and by Paul will cause us or will not cause us to lift ourselves up in pride, but it will cause us to have compassion on those that were in the same spot that we were once in. We were once there. We were also sinners without the grace of God. We hadn't been touched by God. And God saved us, the word of God says, according to the pleasure of his own will, not because of something that he saw in us. And so if we have that attitude about ourselves, how could we be selfish in prayer? I mean, realizing what God has done for us, that he loved us, That'll cause us to do what Christ did, and that is to be concerned for others before self. And that leads us into these intercessory prayers. It's God's will that we pray for others. Well, no doubt the greatest example of that is found in John 17. A few years ago when we were studying that chapter, going through the Gospel of John, we came to the 17th chapter of John, and I titled the messages then, The Real Lord's Prayer. Now, Matthew chapter 6, that's the model prayer. That's a model that Jesus gave the disciples, and that is not a prayer that Jesus would have prayed for himself. At least most of it wasn't, or some of it wasn't. For instance, Jesus taught the disciples to pray for forgiveness, and Jesus never would have needed to pray that kind of prayer for himself. But in John 17, we do have Jesus' prayer, and it's the longest prayer that's recorded in the Bible that Jesus prayed, and we call that his high priestly intercessory prayer. It's the real Lord's prayer. It's a prayer for others. And even in the beginning of that prayer, while he's praying for his own glory, that's also a prayer for others because the way that Jesus received his glory was by doing the Father's will. And the Father's will was that he would come here and give his life for us. And now that that's accomplished, then of course he deserves all the glory for it. And then when he's through with that part of it, then he begins to pray for his disciples. And all the rest of that prayer is for their strength and for their sanctification and for their final salvation. And then he prayed for those that would be one through their preaching of the gospel. So not only did he pray for the disciples and pray for those that were the immediate recipients of the word of God from those apostles, but he was also praying for me and you because that's an intercessory prayer for us because we have also been one through that original witness of the apostles going wherever they went, spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ. It comes down to us today because of them. And so when Jesus prayed that prayer, he was also praying for us. And that 17th chapter of John is just the real classic example that we have of intercessory prayer. And then we also see the command for intercessory prayer from Paul. 1 Thessalonians 5.25, it says, Brethren, pray for us. 2 Thessalonians 3 verse 1, Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may have free course and be glorified even as it is with you. And then in Hebrews thirteen eighteen, pray for us, for we trust we have a good conscience in all things, in all things willing to live honestly. And that verse comes after the writer tells the church to obey your leaders because they watch for your souls. And he says, pray for us. And he means pray for your leaders. And then if you turn back just a few pages to James, the fifth chapter, You'll find here some practical exhortations from James concerning prayer for others. 
In the 13th verse, starting there in James chapter 5, he says, Is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. Is any merry? Let him sing psalms. Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick, and the Lord shall raise him up. And if he hath committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. Listen to verse 16. Confess your faults one to another, and pray for one another that ye may be healed. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. You know, that's something I think this church has learned very well. We're here tonight in a Wednesday night service. We call it our prayer meeting. We have a prayer page, and we have all these different categories with many names of people in those categories. And a few weeks ago, when I was working on this message, I counted the number of names that were on the prayer page at that time, and there were 118 people that were listed on our prayer page. And I know it's, it, it's hard for you to get through all those names one by one when you're praying. And, I, and I'm certainly not a legalist about this. Uh, and I wouldn't say that you failed if you don't sit down every single day and read off those names, pray for them individually one by one, every name that's on your prayer page. You know, you'll notice that when Jesus prayed for his disciples in John 17, he didn't go through the list one by one. He only had 12 at that point, he didn't go through the list one by one. And he didn't pray for all those in all the centuries afterwards that would believe in him one by one. And he could have done that because he knows who they are, who knew every one of them was. Remember, they, they had their names written down from the foundation of the world in that long list of all the people that would believe in him. If he wanted to, he could have named them all one by one. Because he knows not only their salvation, but he knows all the intricate details of everything that's going on in their lives. He could do that, but Jesus didn't do that. And so I wouldn't say that, you know, I would be legalistic about that and say, well, you're doing the wrong thing if you don't pray, take your prayer page and, and, and pray for every person one by one. And there's nothing wrong with doing that, and I think it would be a great thing if you could, if you could spend time doing that, but at least you ought to do this with your prayer page. Read it. Familiarize yourself with the names, and then if you can't do each one one by one, then it's all right to pray for them as a group. God knows their names, even if you don't speak the names. The important part of your prayer page is that you care enough to pray about it, that you're considerate of others, and you pray about it. They need prayer. And so don't wrap your prayers up with me and mine and then end it at that. We are commanded to pray for each other. And so it's no wonder that in this example of prayer that John gives that it would be an intercessory prayer. Now, I need to make a couple of comments about the sincerity of our prayers. And that is not, you don't look at your prayer page as an obligation. It is an obligation. But if you take it that way, then you're going to be cold and indifferent about your prayer. Instead, you ought to approach the prayer page like it's a privilege. See, many of the people that are on there have asked for prayer for themselves. And they've asked for prayer for their families. And so... Uh, you've done the same things, and some of you have your names on there and your family members on there. So, if you ask people to pray for you, then be considerate enough to pray for them. Pray for them because we're commanded to do it. And sincerity is, a, is an important issue. And I'm amused 
Sometimes when I get a letter from certain pastors, and this is not uncommon for me to get these, but they send me a letter and somebody in another ministry, usually the big ministries, will say, you know, I was thinking about you this morning and I was praying for you and your ministry. And I get that letter on one of those, you know, it's one of those form letters been spit out by a computer with a computerized signature on it. I've been praying for you today. And usually that prayer letter has a little section at the bottom where it says, would you help us in our ministry? Can you send me $25, $50, $100? So I know this, that, you know, you're supposed to check that, put the check in there and envelope and mail it back. So I know this, if they were praying for me, they were praying that I would give them money. That's what they're praying for. And so, uh, when they say, I pray for you today, that's usually a ruse. That's a, a gimmick to get a few bucks out of me. Then several months ago, there was a preacher that called me, and he said, uh, Pastor so-and-so told me to call you. He wants you to know that he's praying for you. He's praying for your ministry. And he told me to call you because he wants to know that if you will buy a brick for $1,000 to help him to build a new building on campus. And I said, I'll pray about that. So... <laughs> So, you need to pray for others. Let me tell you what you should pray for, for others. I'm going to give you two things tonight to pray about, and these two things cover it all. You pray for these two things, and you've covered it all. First of all, pray for material blessings. There's nothing wrong with praying for material blessings. And it's really sad that you have these heretics that have played fast and loose with our relationship to material things and... Uh, this is where they center their ministries. And know Jorge told me the other day, it's been a few weeks ago now, he said that uh, he was invited to a church where the preacher said, pray about this for five months. And if you're not, or maybe five weeks, I don't remember which, pray about this for five months. And if you're not rich by the time you get done, then there's something wrong with your faith. And that's a bunch of nonsense. I mean, if you're praying to get rich, save your breath, take that five months and find yourself a job. You'll be a lot better off. James said, Ye ask and receive not, because ye ask amiss, that ye may consume it upon your lust. Do you understand that if you pray for wealth, and you think that God intends for Christians to live on easy street, that something terribly has gone wrong? And you know what's gone wrong? You've cut out about three-fourths of your Bible. You just cut your Bible to shreds because the Word of God says this. This is what James says in James 1. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into divers' temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. Now, you understand what James means when he says divers' temptations? He means various types of pains and sorrows and hardships and poverty and persecutions that Christians go through. He said, count it all joy when that happens to you because God is sharpening your faith with those things. And God wants you to depend on him. And he knows if he brings those things into your life, you've only got one place to go. And that's to him. And that's exactly where he wants you. But it's not wrong to pray for people and material blessings. Jesus said in the model prayer, give us this day our daily bread. And have you ever thought about this, that, that God uses human instrumentality, that it might be his method of supplying someone else's needs through your prayers, supplying their daily provisions by something you can do for them? You know, James addresses that too, and I'm not going to go there now, but he says God may 
use you to be the provision for that person. So how many of us really pray that way? God, help me to be their provision. And if you prayed like that, that'd go a long way towards telling how sincere that you are in your prayers, wouldn't it? Now, secondly, is to pray for spiritual blessings. And this is really the main point of John's example. He says, if any man see a brother sin a sin, ask. Now, that is prayer for spiritual welfare. Blessings are stymied by sin. And that's why we have that whole section over there in Hebrews chapter 12 that we've studied on a couple of Wednesday evenings all about chastisement. And God brings chastisement to get you out of sin, to get others out of sin so he can bless you. That's where he wants you. And God's blessing on you is not a new BMW. God's blessing on you is the peace and the contentment of living in God's will. You see, sinning Christians are miserable Christians. And if they aren't miserable at the immediate moment, they will be because God is not going to let you live in sin. You haven't been designed to live in sin. That's part of what the First John is about. Christians have not been designed to live in sin. And so if you do, you're going to be a miserable Christian. And if you find out you live in sin and you aren't being chastised by God then you can't find yourself in this passage because you aren't one of God's children because that's the way he always treats his children. Now, I'm going to stop with that. We're a little bit ahead of schedule here tonight. We must have got started earlier or something. I've been talking fast. I don't know what. But we're going to stop with that. And just let me remind you that the Apostle Paul told us that we have been blessed with all spiritual blessings in Christ. So a sinning Christian cannot be a happy camper. If he, if, if, if he lives that way, he's forgotten the spiritual blessings that God has given. You know, a few weeks ago, we were reading in Second Peter chapter 1, and there's a long list there, if you want to read that again, of Christian graces that Peter said that we need in our lives. And he said, if you have these things, you will enter abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Then he also said right after that, but he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. So if you have forgotten that you've been purged from your old sins, you will be a miserable Christian indeed. So pray for spiritual blessings. Pray that people will live closely to the Lord so they'll be happy, fulfilled, joyous people. That's what God wants us to be. And prayer is a means of bringing those things into your life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time to be here tonight. And Lord, what's a wonderful passage that we have before us. And we've talked about confidence in prayer and how great it is to know that we have a Savior who cares for us and loves for loves us. We have you as our Father that is just always ready to hear what we need and ready to answer. Lord, we just thank you for that great privilege that we have. And Lord, help us to be the kind of people, as we talked about tonight, that pray for others, that we intercede for others, that we want your greatest blessings to be on this church and the people that we worship with. And Lord, we we just ask you that we would be the kind of people that do pray for each other. Thank you for your church, Lord. Thank you for our fellowship one with another. Bless us. This evening, in Jesus' name we pray, amen.